Hey guys, Nick and I have been using this really awesome resource to help us with our Creogs Over Coffee creation. Check out the OBG Project at www.obgprojects.com. They have an awesome collection of multiple resources reviewing the latest practice bulletins, guidelines, and randomized control trials, as well as interesting papers that you might just not look at every day. One thing that we've also signed up is something called OBG First. So this is a subscription that they have where you are able to get the latest research summary as well as um, the latest clinical guidelines or summary sent straight to your phone via email or text message. As well as going online to their website, you can save your favorite items to your own personalized library or bookshelf, as they call it. The wonderful thing is that Nick and I are about to be fourth-year residents, and if you're like us, you can actually get this subscription for one year for completely free. All you have to do is go on their website. Um, we will put the link in our website post. You can go on. All you need to do is your name, email address, and the name of your program so they can verify that you're a fourth-year resident, and you can have OBG First absolutely free for one year. They update every single day, so they move a little bit faster than Faye and I do with our weekly episodes, but definitely supplement your studying with them. They're really awesome. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. Today, we are delighted to have with us Dr. Julia Shinnick. Julia is currently a third-year resident at the Warren Alpert Brown School of Medicine and Women and Infants Hospital of Rhode Island in obstetrics and gynecology and will be a future urogynecology fellow at Women and Infants as well. Welcome, Julia. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Julia, what are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about prolapse. Get excited. <laughs> so prolapse is a benign condition that affects the quality of life of many women. In the U.S., women have about a 13% chance of undergoing surgery for prolapse in their lifetime. The peak incidence of prolapse in women is between 70 and 79 years, though the incidence is quoted to be as high as 41 to 50% of women. All right, even just to back it up for people like me that don't know a lot about prolapse, what exactly is it, Julia? So prolapse is descent of one or more aspects of the vagina. It can affect the anterior vaginal wall, the posterior vaginal wall, the uterus, and the cervix, or one or the other. Can it happen after hysterectomy too? Yes, of course. The cuff can prolapse as well. Some people think of prolapse as a herniation. You can conceptualize the pathophysiology as weakening of the fascia connective tissues that provide the support for the vagina itself. Julia, can you walk us through a little bit about what is actually falling down when you say anterior or posterior or apex prolapse? Absolutely. So in the case of the anterior wall, there's protrusion of the bladder downward through the pubocervical fascia. In this case, it's called the cystocele. With the posterior wall, it's a protrusion of the rectum upward through de Novier's fascia. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Or the rectovaginal septum, which is made up of an anterior layer called de Novier's fascia and a posterior layer called the fascia propria of the rectum. This is called the rectocele. As you were mentioning before, the apex of the vagina can be either post-hysterectomy or the vaginal cuff or the uterus and cervix itself. 
Um, Julia, I feel like when I'm on my Eurogyne rotation, I've been like, oh, this is a cystocele. And then I've been told not to call it a cystocele. Why is that? Yes, absolutely. Because you can't really confirm that it's the bladder protruding through unless you're in the operating room and can see it itself. So sometimes that like a high cyst or a very proximal cystocele could what appears to be a cystocele could actually contain bowel or um, vice versa. So you you use anterior compartment prolapse, posterior compartment prolapse, or apical prolapse in the clinical setting because you can't truly um, figure out what's herniating through. I think another common operating room question is about levels of support in the pelvis. Um, another, I hear like level one support, and sometimes I have a confused look on my face, I feel like. But yes. what what exactly are these levels of support? Exactly. So Dr. Delancey from Michigan described three levels of support for the vagina. Level one support consists of cardinal and uterosacral ligaments and suspends the vaginal apex. This suspends the uterus and the upper vagina to the sacrum and the pelvic sidewall. On MRI studies of asymptomatic women, uterosacral ligaments are found to originate from the cervix in about one-third of women in the vagina and the other two-thirds. Loss of this support contributes to prolapse of the uterus and vaginal apex or apical prolapse. What about level two support? So level two support are the paravaginal attachments, which is kind of what makes the H shape of the vagina. The anterior wall is suspended laterally to the arcus tendineus fascia pelvis, the ATFP or the white line as a lot of people will call it. And this is really just a thickened condensation of fascia overlying the iliococcygeus muscle. The anterior portion of level two support suspend the mid portion of the anterior wall of the vagina and create those lateral sulci that make that H shape. Detachment of this can lead to paravaginal defects and prolapse of the anterior wall. There are also posterior lateral supports, so the bottom of that H, and that's the distal half of the posterior vaginal wall that fuses with the apneurosis of the levator ani midway between the pubic symphysis and the ischial spine. Along the proximal half of the vagina, or the higher up half if you're doing vaginal surgery, the anterior and posterior vaginal walls are both supported laterally to the ATFP. And then, of course, lastly is level three. That consists of the perineal body and the interlacing muscle fibers of the bulbospongiosis, the transverse perinei, and the external anal sphincter. Loss of three support can result in a distal rectal seal or perineal descent. Got it. So kind of, I guess this moves like from most but if you're looking at the vagina, like most distal to most proximal, so to speak. So like level one is the apex, level mm-hmm. two being sort of the lateral vaginal walls and level three being the sort of the perineal floor, perineal body. Yes, absolutely. From um, distal to proximal, from the perspective of a vaginal surgeon that's doing vaginal surgery. But when you're talking about it in the office, you'll be calling it most proximal to distal. Fair enough. <laughs> Julia, when people come in know with prolapse like what are the typical complaints that you elicit in the office yeah so a lot of women don't have any complaints they don't know that they have prolapse their doctor may have mentioned oh i think something i think your your bladder's falling or you might want to get surgery for your bladder to be tacked up which you really don't need unless you're symptomatic For symptomatic women, they'll most often present with vaginal bulge, pressure, trouble voiding. They may have to splint to void or to defecate or have sexual dysfunction. Most women will become symptomatic when the leading edge of their prolapse is about half a centimeter to a centimeter distal to the hymenal ring. 
What about risk factors for prolapse, Julia? What should I be avoiding so that I don't need to come see you in the future? (laughs) Of course. So you should stay healthy. Obesity is a major risk factor for um, prolapse as are parity and vaginal deliveries, which are both risk factors. So even if you have elective non-laboring C-sections, your pelvic floor changes throughout pregnancy. That can put you at increased risk for prolapse. Of course, age menopausal status, constipation, heavy lifting, or any other job or hobby that involves chronic Valsalva. So obstetrics and gynecology, I guess. Basically everything. (laughs) All right. So I guess thinking now, Julia, how exactly do we diagnose or neatly talk about prolapse? Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why I love prolapse so much. It's really diagnosed through your history and your physical exam, and it's all pretty intuitive. Um, Of course, for women who are coming to you with these symptoms, you want to rule out any other causes that could be contributing to them. Make sure they're not related solely to the genitourinary syndrome of menopause, as a lot of women will also be affected by vaginal atrophy. And you want to make sure there's no underlying malignancies or anything behind your prolapse that could be causing it, although that's relatively uncommon. So to diagnose prolapse, you'll do a split speculum exam. Um, And that's another thing I love about Urogyne because you just take the speculum apart and use that posterior blade that really helps you get access to these different walls. And then, so here's the thing, you know, I get confused about this and I'm sure a lot of our fellow residents also get confused, which is basically the POPQ measurements in that tic-tac-toe board, um, which of course we'll post on our website. But Julie, can you just go through that tic-tac-toe board for us and what, like, what is AA and what is AP? Yes, the POPQ exam. It's kind of a beast, but once you get it, I think you get it. Um, the POPQ measures nine points, all of which are measured during Valsalva, with the exception of TVL, which is the total vaginal length. We can go through each of the points in order, and I'll talk about them kind of in the way that I obtain them on the exam. There are many, many different correct ways to do a POPQ exam, so this is definitely not the only way. It may not be the most efficient way. It's just the way that I do it and how I kind of systematically go through it when I'm evaluating a patient. So the first measurement that I normally take is GH or the genital hiatus. And this is measured from the middle of the urethromiatus to the midline of the posterior hymen, again, during Valsalva. Next is PB or perineal body, which is measured from the middle of the posterior hymen during Valsalva to the middle of the anal opening. And again, you're taking these measurements with um, whether it's like a marked popsicle stick or a marked Q-tip or just anything where you can have centimeters demarcated and you can see about how long these distances are. After I've measured GH and PB, normally I'll insert the speculum and do my normal assessment of the cervix and the vaginal epithelium. You'll be looking for atrophy, as I mentioned before, any ulcerations. Sometimes women with prolapse can have ulcerated skin that causes abnormal discharge, a little bit of bleeding, and you just want to know about that in advance and certainly um, take care of any other processes before you go about addressing their prolapse. So after I've done my normal pelvic exam, I'll take my marked Q-tip or pop Q-stick and place it all the way at the apex of the vagina, whether that be the cuff or the posterior fornix, and then I'll I'll measure that and that'll be your TVL. Next, I'll ask the patient to Valsalva. In a patient with this with a cervix, the distance between the posterior cuff and the hymen is point D. In a patient without a uterus and cervix, point D just doesn't exist. And that'll be an X or a blank or a dot or something on your pop Q grid. 
When a patient without a cervix valsalva's after their TVO measurement, the distance from the leading edge of the cuff to the hymen is point C. For those who do have a cervix, point C is the leading edge of the cervix. Next, I can take apart my speculum and direct my attention to the anterior wall. There are two points that are measured here. The first is AA, which is three centimeters proximal to the urethral meatus, and the second is BA, which is the most prolapsed portion of the vaginal wall. Again, these are measured during Valsalva. Lastly, I flip the posterior blade of my speculum over and gently lift the anterior wall and direct my attention to the posterior wall, where I measure AP and BP. AP, like AA, is measured three centimeters proximal to the posterior hymen, and BP is measured as the most prolapsed portion of the posterior wall. I think really to try and get this, Julia, we need to try something that's kind of like a practice, I guess. So... What would we say like the pop cue of somebody without a prolapse would be like? Yeah. So if you think about it, um, for AA and AB and AP and BP, if there's no prolapse, those are all going to be minus three because they're points that are three centimeters or proximal from the hymen um, with AA being categorically defined as three centimeters. And if there is no prolapse and you're, nothing is there at all, you just by definition measure the P's as minus three. D will equal about TVL if you don't have any prolapse, and C is generally a few centimeters less than D. No, people talk about, I think, stages of prolapse in their final diagnosis is just a succinct way to say how bad is it really? Um, or I shouldn't say how bad is it really, but how significant is the prolapse really? So what what are the stages kind of thinking about the pop cue, Julia? Mm-hmm. So I think of it, uh, I think it's most easy in learning about the stages of prolapse is to just memorize stage two and everything else just kind of makes sense. So if you remember that stage two is the most dis- is where the most distal portion of the prolapse is from minus one to plus one. Zero is going to be no prolapse. Stage four is going to be TVL minus two, and then you really only have to know one and three. So if stage two, as I mentioned, is um, minus one to plus one, stage one is going to be less than minus one. So your prolapse is some point in between completely suspended and minus one from the hymen. Stage three, conversely, is going to be something after plus one but less than TVL minus two. Your prolapse is more than a centimeter beyond the hymen, but you're not fully everted. Any other pearls that you can give us about your POP-Q exam, Julia? Yeah, repeat exam can be helpful. Sometimes women will be horribly symptomatic and you'll do their exam and you won't really find significant prolapse. And women can be affected by prolapse differently and that doesn't mean they shouldn't be treated and that doesn't mean their prolapse isn't real. But sometimes if their symptoms are horribly discrepant from what you're finding, you can do a repeat exam and that can be helpful. Of course, during your um, full pelvic exam, you'll also be assessing for levator tenderness and the strength of their levators by asking them to do a Kegel exercise during the exam. And it, sometimes it can also be helpful to ask them to Valsalva when you're done with that portion so you can feel the apex yourself and how it's descending. Because again, when you're using your pop cue stick or your Q-tip or whatever you're using, you're not directly visualizing that it's truly right. At, it's truly at the furthest point of descent most of the time. Of course, if you can, you should, and that's great. Um, but sometimes also just feeling digitally how their pelvic floor is moving can be very helpful. I think it's also important to remember to check a PVR 
people with prolapse can have, of course, urinary and defecatory symptoms, but it can also cause urinary obstruction. Um, so making sure that they are able to empty their bladder with when their prolapse is at its maximal descent is very important for their safety. So I guess, you know, if urine can be obstructed, can urine leak due to prolapse as well? Yeah, that's a really great question. I feel that oftentimes women will start to experience urinary leakage after their prolapse is restored. Um, So sometimes if the bladder is herniating through that pubocervical fascia, this can narrow the angle of the urethra and the bladder can kind of be, or the urethra can kind of be kinked off, so to think. Um, And when the bladder is restored back to its more physiologic position, this can kind of un- unclamp the the water hose and women will find out, realize that they now experience stress incontinence. Um, What about management options? I think we can kind of talk about that a little bit. So what would you tell women who are coming in and they have symptomatic prolapse? Yeah, I think the most important thing is that while this is a condition that we want to help them with and support them through however they see fit, um, this isn't a deadly condition. This isn't something like cancer. It's not something that we need to operate on emergently. It's something that we're going to address very carefully and safely for them um, because it's really a quality of life issue. There are a lot of high quality studies that show through the natural history of prolapse, um, women who are asymptomatic and do not want or who are symptomatic and do not want treatment for their prolapse for whatever reason can expect their prolapse to get a little bit worse over time. But it's very slowly progressive for most patients and some women will have no change in their symptoms. For women, as I mentioned, this is a quality of life issue, so treatment is only really indicated for women who have symptoms. When you're talking about treating a woman with prolapse, you'll discuss their goals of treatment. How is it affecting their daily life? What are their post-operative expectations? I remember seeing a patient in clinic once who did a lot of heavy lifting, and she wasn't going to be able to take time out of work, and she was going to be lifting 60-pound boxes the day after her surgery. That's really not the best surgical candidate because as that lifestyle likely contributed to her prolapse, her body's not going to be able to heal, and it would be very likely to recur if she had surgery. So surgery wasn't going to be the best fit for her. Similarly, a lot of patients will present with constipation, and if you control their constipation beforehand, they'll have a much better outcome if they aren't straining on their repair the whole time. Another thing to counsel patients about as you're treating them is their risk of urinary incontinence after repair of their prolapse. Studies have reported about a 13 to 65% chance for a continent woman to develop symptoms of stress incontinence after surgical correction of her prolapse. Ox has a really great free calculator online that can include the age, uh, a patient's age at her time of surgery, BMI, vaginal parity, diabetes, and a few other factors that can help predict their risk of incontinence. And of course, you're already assessing them for incontinence with their prolapse reduced prior, prior to treating them. Of course it does. So as I mentioned, expected management can be a very popular option. A lot of women don't want to undergo surgery unless they really need it, and that's totally okay. The next step up would be pelvic floor physical therapy. So there are physical therapists who are specifically trained um, to treat women with pelvic floor disorders who can help strengthen their muscles, which can um, help with their symptoms to some extent and prevent progression of prolapse. 
Of course, there's also um, a pessary, which I think is another fantastic option. Um, that's like this, I'm sure most people have seen one by now. It's like this little disc um, that women can put in their vagina to help support their vaginal walls. Um, they, while they aren't always the most popular um, treatment option, they're very effective. Up to 92% of women can be successfully fitted with a pessary. Ring pessaries are generally first line. Those are those those ones that really kind of look like a disc. They're smaller, they're flat, um, they kind of have a little ridge along the edge of them. Um, but there's also um, another option for women with more advanced stages of prolapse called a gellhorn pessary. And they look similar to that ring pessary, but they have that kind of knob on the end. Most women can um, change their pessaries on their own. The Gellhorn pessaries for the women with more advanced prolapse or who, for whatever reason, could not be fitted with a ring um, pessary for their prolapse. The Gellhorns um, can be more difficult for a woman to change herself and for a doctor to, or NP to change for her. Um, so those women generally come to the office for pessary changes, and that can happen, the frequency, somewhere between two and four months. Um, so we've talked about expectant management. We've talked about more conservative therapies. So what's left is surgery. So what surgeries are appropriate for these women? So there are so many surgical options for prolapse. Um, and surgeries can really involve hysterectomy, which is taking out the uterus, or hysteropexy, which is moving where the uterus is or like pexing the uterus to other structures to help provide support. And the ge- there are some geographic differences in the patterns of how these surgeries are performed. Um, So to fix the anterior wall, you can do an anterior repair and plicate that pubocervical fascia. Similarly, you can do things on the posterior wall. There are paravaginal repairs that can be done um, laparoscopically, abdominally, vaginally. And then the more classic urogyne procedures that people think of, the uterosacral ligament suspension, the sacrospinous ligament fixation, and then vaginal repairs with mesh or graft, um, and then versions of laparoscopic and abdominal procedures, um, including sacral copopexy. And then, of course, copoclysis, which is the first vaginal surgery I ever saw. Julia, you mentioned earlier one of the complications of surgery could be de novo onset urinary incontinence. Um, But kind of thinking about complications or risk factors, things you want to counsel patients about, kind of therapy by therapy, what would be the important things for us as general OBGYNs to keep in mind? Yeah, I would definitely talk to my patient about treatment failures and treatments not improving their prolapse, there is a very high recurrence rate. And again, some of that can be related to the pathophysiology of the prolapse itself, whether this person has weakened connective tissues or for whatever reason their lifestyle predisposes them to have recurrent prolapse. Um, But some women will undergo numerous treatments for their prolapse. While reoperation rates have gone down over the last few decades as we have better data to guide us in surgical selection um, for appropriate patients, the recurrence rates are about 6 to 30% still. Um, another thing to remember is addressing the apex itself. A lot of women will come in with anterior wall support issues and their apical support issue may go unrecognized. So if there's a chance that the patient may benefit from an apical procedure, referral to a urogynecologist may be appropriate. Uh, Julia, what about complications for the more conservative um, treatments? So like with pessary use, for example. Yeah, so pessaries are very generally very safe to use. Um, The more common 
complications that happen with a pessary are related to pressure ulcers, um, granulation, and abnormal discharge, abnormal smells that um, the patient may not like. But frequent pessary changes and taking pessary holidays can be helpful in alleviating some of those concerns as well as vaginal estrogen at times in appropriate candidates. All right, Julia, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and um, talking to us about um, prolapse. So if you don't mind, Nick and I are going to try and summarize everything that you just told us. That sounds awesome. So we started talking about, about the problem of prolapse, descent of one or more aspects of the vagina, and noting that it's a very common benign condition that can affect the quality of life of women. U.S. women have about a 13% risk of undergoing prolapse surgery in their lifetime. We then talked about the different types of prolapse and what parts of the vagina and uterus can descend. So we talked about anterior prolapse, we talked about posterior prolapse, and of course, apical prolapse. We talked about the symptoms and risk factors of prolapse, and then we also moved from there into the diagnosis of prolapse. And Julia gave us an excellent overview of the POP-Q exam. On our website, we'll be sure to have a nice overview of that as well as the OGS interactive tool, which is something that you can play with that makes learning the POP-Q very easy. We then moved on to management options. And thinking about management options, um, we want to think about conservative to um, more invasive. So things like leaving the prolapse alone is completely fine if the patient is asymptomatic and does not want treatment. We can also treat patients with things like um, a pessary. And of course, if they want to have surgical correction, there are multiple surgeries that can correct many different parts of the prolapse. Each of these management options comes with their own advantages and risks, but some of the more common things include unmasking of urinary incontinence when correcting prolapse, um, dyspareunia, other types of vaginal pain, um, or no improvement, or the risk of reoperation later on. Julia, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online, social media on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, on our own website at www.creogsovercoffee.com, or if you're feeling generous and want to sponsor us, check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash creogsovercoffee, where you can get exclusive content, a shout out on the show, or some cool swag. If you want to suggest an episode topic or you want to let us know about a correction to one of our previous episodes or you just want to give us a shout out, go ahead and email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.